The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. Welcome to Top. I'm Mike Merrill. And today I'm speaking with Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss about their new documentary, The Mission. This film tells the story of John Chow, a young Christian missionary who set off for the North Sentinel Island to proselytize the people there, long depicted as completely isolated from the world and unwelcoming of strangers. In sketching how John came to embrace this dangerous mission, Amanda and Jesse show how the stories we Westerners tell of supposedly untouched peoples is really more about us than them. Amanda and Jesse were actually the guests at our very first Top Docs when they came to talk to us about Boy State, which went on to win an Emmy for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. The mission is now open in New York and Los Angeles, and will be opening more widely in the US and Canada over the month of October. If you like this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod, and you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Top Docs Pod. Now, my conversation with Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss about the mission. Amanda, Jesse, welcome back to Top Docs. Thank you. Hey, great to be here. You folks were on our very first program about 150 episodes ago for Boy State. Thank you for being back here today. So in this film, you tell the story of John Chow, young man who in 2018 went to the North Sentinelese Islands or Island with the intention of telling the people there, long isolated from the rest of the world and reputed to be not welcoming to strangers uh, about Jesus. Um, and after a few failed encounters, John made a final try. The fishermen who brought him there said they saw his body on the beach. What drew you to this story? A couple of things. We've made a couple of films about radical faith. I think it's part of a story that continues to interest us in our world, people of faith and understanding faith and how it affects our lives and the choices people make. So starting with the overnighters and then the family, this is the third project that we've done. It's really about asking the question of what does it mean to live your faith and how do you live your faith? I say that as someone who grew up in a non-religious household, didn't find my way to exploring these questions until about 10 years ago. So it's a continuation of that project. I think with John's story, it was a global news story. I mean, it grabbed our attention as it did so many people for a couple of reasons. An American kid, 26 years old, ends up dead on this beach in a tiny island no one's ever heard of, 9,000 miles from his home. He'd gone there to preach the gospel. And the Sentinelese, this tribe that we know almost nothing about, who live on this island we know almost nothing about, had killed him. And I think that it was both what propelled John to make that trip, that mission, and also, who are the Sentinelese? And what is this place that is the last unmapped place on our planet? Before we get into his story, very early on, I think you also set up some big sorts of ways of talking about this that reflect different worldviews. So first off, we have a narration from a film from several years back, many years back, by an Indian anthropologist, Hien Pandit. And he uses terms like, would we have a glimpse of the inhabitants? And no one in recorded history. 
and some of the other conventional tropes of this sort of encounter. And then we have Adam Goodhart, who uses a different language. One I think we think of as a little more contemporary, like how will we understand their lived experience, which is a term anyone who's been to an HR seminar recently will recognize, that when we approach, it's ultimately an imaginative act. And he suggests that talking about the Sentinelese reveals so much and conceals so much, a view that, Jesse, I think you shared a concern around that. Can you talk about these two competing ways of seeing this experience? I think this partly is an answer to your previous question, too. It's part of what intrigued us about this story is that it started with John going to North Sentinel, but then you pull the thread and suddenly it, it's a story that relates to a lot of stories of adventure, a lot of stories coming from anthropologists who have a different motivation for wanting to go to an island like this, or a historian, or a documentary filmmaker. So the unknown is not intriguing to just an evangelical missionary. It is something that we've all, it, it's part of what intrigued me when I read the news story. I was like, I can't believe there's still a tribe that has had no contact with the rest of the world on our planet still. So there's a lot of competing everything in this film, really. People coming at different kinds of religion, different kinds of missionary work, different kinds of secular people coming to this, like myself. So I, I'm not sure there's two sides to this story. There's many, many sides. In sketching John's youth leading up to this experience, again, he was only 26. 26 years, 11 months, and a few days, as his father heartbreakingly recounts. You speak to a number of motivations. There's two main sources, it seems. Like, it's his diary, which he kept almost up to the very end, and then a letter from his father, which I believe he wrote to you specifically. And they released the diary after his death. The family seems quite open. Some of the other participants in John's story aren't as open. Can you talk about the family's openness and what do you think it reflects? Just to clarify, the letter Patrick Chow wrote that he shared with us was, I think, really written to people coming to understand John's choices and his father's relationship to his son and his grief. So it wasn't written directly to us, but written by Patrick and shared with us by Patrick. I think that John is something of a mystery. There's a lot that we know about him, and he left behind his diary. You mentioned that. It's incredibly anguished and personal, perhaps the closest glimpse we get to understanding who John was and what motivated him and what he was grappling with in those couple of days that he was trying to land on the island. But there's a lot that he concealed, a lot that we don't know. And part of the project of the film is to uncover those details, to speak to people who knew him, to uncover the documents like his master plan that we reveal in the film that had never been released before, 26 pages in which he very methodically and intelligently laid out how this was going to work. But there were parts of John that he hid. And what Patrick's letter is so important in doing is really, I think, allowing us emotionally to understand the grief. As parents, we could relate to that, but also the theological questions that John's story provokes. Because his father, while being Christian, questioned John's actions and the slow descent into what he describes as a whirlpool of radical faith that ultimately consumed his son. There seem to be a couple of different streams motivating John's determination to visit these islands in a missionary capacity, despite the apparent danger. One of the very early ones is this theme of adventure. Even before he made the connection to missionary work, as a younger boy, he was drawn to Robinson Crusoe, Hatchet. I Sat of the Mountain, Sign of the Beaver, Adventures of Tintin, some of which my own children read when they were younger. Basically, his father says he was charmed by the romantic spirit of the colonial era. 
you know, he even ultimately suggests he wants to go live alone on an island and scale trees. Can you talk about this early kind of influence of adventure? Well, he took in a lot of the same stories we all took in, which is another way we came to this story is what are the points of his life that I can relate to as a secular person? And what's problematic about those stories now that we're in this time of reckoning with a lot of our culture and reviewing some of the stories that we all took in as kids, I think it's really interesting to think through those stories in addition to the Bible stories that were obviously super important to motivating John. Someone mentioned, by the way, Into the Wild to us a couple of days ago or yeah. weeks ago. And I think that that was a very different person doing a very different thing, Chris McCandless, but he did call himself Alex Supertramp when he was going out on his version of his mission. Anyway, different story. But I do think there is a part of all of us as, as young people in particular, where we are the center of the story, where there's adventure person, this boy's own adventure Adventure person. awaits. I yeah, mean, that John yeah. wrote those words. Yeah. He, he saw yeah. his life as a life of adventure. Yeah. And that he was specifically kind of made for this particular mission because he was such an outdoorsman, because he liked to scale mountains and trees and live off the land. And not every missionary has that background. So he had both the biblical sort of understanding, but also this the physical capability to do this particular mission. John's raised in a religious family, and he goes to a Christian school in Vancouver, Washington. And here he learns of the Great Commission, this imperative to go out into the world and tell people about Jesus. And as someone myself who was raised quite Christian, I, I think it would be good to draw some distinctions here, and you do quite well, between Christians, evangelical Christians, who, as the name suggests, believe in proselytizing, believe in converting people, and those who are what both his father and Dan Everett, who I'd like to talk about a little bit more, call the most radical, the people who promote this aggressive, adventuresome missionary work. Can you talk a little bit about how you delineate between those? Well, I think we do try to understand the culture that John came from. His family was evangelical. Uh, he went to a Christian high school in Vancouver, Washington. I mean, he, he came from a very insular Christian community in which missionary work was highly valued. And John did go on a missionary trip to Mexico in his high school years. That was formative. But mm -hmm. I think he wanted something bolder and something braver. And at the age of 16, while browsing unreached people groups on the internet, he discovers the Sentinelese, perhaps the, the single most difficult group in the world to proselytize to because of where they live, because of their historic relationship to outsiders. They are not uncontacted, just to be clear. This is a tribe or a community of culture with a history. And part of the project of this film is not just to unpack and unravel John's history and culture and tradition, but as much as we can of the Sentinelese, so that when these two people and two histories and two cultures meet, we can see it with a greater degree of context. What's so interesting about John is 16 is he discovers the Sentinelese, but it takes him 10 years to get to the island of North Sentinel. And in those 10 years, his faith hardens, it sharpens. It's actually a word that's used by his own father in describing him as a spear tip who sharpened by others. And part of what this film explores is who are those others, groups and individuals who help him clarify and discern his faith. And I think that was where really interesting questions within the faith community that surrounded John. We wondered, were there questioning voices? Yeah, and you found them. And I do want to speak more about the people who helped them and those who are critical. But, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Spears. And of course, John sees some of these films like Through the Gates of Splendor and The End of the Spear, which show these missionaries reaching supposedly, quote unquote, untouched peoples, as you noted, almost never the case. 
But what's interesting to me is that John actually had an in-house critic of way of, of seeing the world in this way, his father. His father had come to the U.S. from China during the Cultural Revolution. This happened in China in the mid-60s and 70s, mid-70s, purged a lot of educated people. He's a Christian, but he believes the type of missionary work that John is beginning to model is marked by a colonialist and even imperialist mindset. John looked up to him for a long time, but this criticism doesn't seem to seep through, really. One of the letters that his father shared with us is a deeply theological sort of like explanation of what their split is. That is, it's very dense and an understanding of what the Great Commission means, an interpretation of a part of the Bible that's incredibly important to how John thought about his mission on this island. So that's a dense piece of theology that I don't think we have time to go into, but there is a split there for sure. And I think that his father was right to be critical, as are a lot of people, about the interpretation of that piece of text as a reason for going into anywhere with your message that you believe is so much better than their message that they already have. So it's a that kind of foisting of culture on another culture, obviously, is this island of North Sentinel with John is not the first time that's happened. I want to ask you about a filmic device that you use that seems a little minor, but actually I'm going somewhere with it, which is during the course of the film proper, you don't give names. You don't give label names to folks. It's at the very end. Can you talk about that choice? How did you feel about it? I found myself constantly wanting to know the names. Sometimes you give us little hints, like you show us a book with a name on it. I'm like, oh, that's who it is. I especially wanted the story that this person I later found out Dan Everett's telling, especially drew me in because I was like, this is a familiar story, but I think I've heard it in a different way. So can you tell me why you did it? And then let's talk about Dan. I think that why we don't identify our interview subjects. For one, I think that in almost all of the interviews, there's information that helps you identify who they are. Either they wrote a book and we show the book, or they wrote an article, we show the article, you see their name. I think there's a certain convention to documentary that we were resistant to. We haven't been in the past, but I think in this particular film, there are so few interviews. And we're proud of that fact that, that the people we chose to include in this story are people who either knew John or really had something very important to the story. And so it was about fewer voices, not more voices. We felt like we were giving the audience the information that they needed. And we'll hear from those who feel otherwise, but perhaps they'll be motivated to, to kind of do detective work on their own. And that's part of what this project's about too, is sort of what can you glean from the fragments that remain? And that's the work we do as documentary filmmakers and anthropologists, just a small parenthetical, which is we had a real vigorous internal debate about the naming conventions, which will be the subject of a documentary panel someday, perhaps. But in the midst of this debate, which we all approached with an open mind, I happened to look at Hotel Terminus at Klaus Barp, in which there are probably 150 interviews and no one is ID'd. And I thought, I don't need, I don't, why do I need this information? There's a lot of information in this film, the mission. We're telling a bunch of different stories at the same time and challenging the audience. And let's give them the information that really matters. And what can they take away from what people say on camera, on screen? I guess we're challenging people, but that's okay. It does make it a little harder to talk about after the fact, because you're like, the guy with the beard. Wait, (laughs) the other guy with the beard. (laughs) But I think we wanted people just to be immersed and lean in and listen to what they had to say and not think so much, not only about their name, but also sometimes the lower third necessitates a, why are you in the film? You're a professor of so-and-so, or you're a missionary. Or are you a, what are you? Right. Yeah. I, th- I feel it's like this encounter where you're coming and like, who am I talking to? What's happening here? And I like yeah. that. And it seems fitting. So Dan Everett, you know, as I heard Dan's story, I was like, huh, I, have I heard this story before? And sure enough, I had. 
but I hadn't heard about him as a missionary. I heard about him as a linguist. And of course, Dan Everett became an expert on Amazonian languages and has become really probably the most evidence-based critic of Noam Chomsky's universal grammar. That's how I'd heard of him. And by the way, challenging Chomsky when he did was much like challenging God. And it's interesting, <laughs> that story of Dan eventually, a missionary turns his back on the missionary work as a critic of it, and even ultimately becomes an atheist. I believe an atheist, or at least an agnostic. Th that story seems to echo. This is somebody who's turned his back on the core beliefs that were at his life in many different realms. Yeah, spoiler. So, we, you know, I'm assuming you mean this conversation, well, have seen the film, and perhaps if they haven't yet, maybe to, beep, uh, beep, beep. Right, to proceed with caution. We can talk openly about this now, but Dan is, is such an important voice in the film and an unexpected voice. I mean, he didn't know John, but in some ways he was John Chow. As yeah. a young he found his way to missions work. He was called to the Amazon with his family and young children to the Pitaha tribe and spent much of his life there trying to convert them and struggled. In trying to understand John, we were, as I, I think I mentioned, we were stymied somewhat. John left a lot of breadcrumbs, but but also hid parts of himself. And we, early on in the process, sort of gave ourselves permission to talk to people we called alter egos, people who had lived longer, had versions of John's experience, like Adam Goodhart as a young man who went to the island of North Sentinel. Dan was perhaps, is perhaps the richest alter ego in the film in that he really lived missions work. He has paid a price for that work. He has come to see it with perspective and nuance and passion. I think that this film need, needed his voice, and we couldn't have asked for a better, more compassionate, more understanding, more insightful perspective alter ego than Dan Everett. As you mentioned, he wrote a fabulous book. He was the subject of a New Yorker profile. His linguistics work is quite something and deserving of its own film. In fact, there is a film about that, but we're happy that Dan is in this movie. And, and I think Notably, he has great compassion for John because he was John. And this is where not listing his name, I think, totally helped me to really listen to his story and not think about him as this other person. One of Adam Goodhart's themes, and I think Dan Everett supports it explicitly or implicitly, is that despite seemed, seeming to be a new thing, this encounter between, quote unquote, civilized and, quote unquote, the primitive, it's actually a highly encoded, conventionalized experience. It's nearly impossible to really see these people for who they are, because we come with it with our story. One great visual way you demonstrate this is an old map, to my eye, maybe late 16th century, that shows the island, you know, and it, the paradox is wrapped right up in there. Because on the one hand, it's called the Isle of Good Fortune, but also it says there are cannibals here. Here, here you find cannibals. Quick note, there is no evidence that Lee's or other people in the Adam and Islands practice cannibalism at all. This is just made up. But it really does wrap up the paradox at the core of that experience. Absolutely. And I think actually we get into the film a little bit with National Geographic also, which was part of mm. telling the story of islands and faraway places for over how many years? In the 30s, there was lots of stories of the cannibal, not only with National Geographic, but that in our film. But then it, in the 60s and the 70s, and there's all these romantic stories and they're still exoticizing, but they're much more like, is this place a Garden of Eden? And is this place unspoiled in the way that the rest of us have messed everything up? And that's like a really interesting shift. It right. still doesn't humanize the people that we're telling the story about, but it is a shift that National Geographic itself was part of. Adam describes them as stylized figures, whether it's a National Geographic pictorial spread or a documentary. We 
excerpt a National Geographic documentary about the Tazadeh, the tribe in the Philippines. What's interesting is that they're often portrayed as the lost tribe. This is the trope of narrative storytelling about these cultures is that they're lost. And I think the question is lost to whom, right? There is a tremendous amount of construction, narrative construction that we impose upon them that says much more about us than about them. And I think that is the unpacking that Adam Goodhart, who is now a historian of some renown, but as a young man, went to the island of North Sentinel, like John, possessed of a spirit of adventure. He helps us understand both the history of North Sentinel, because he's actually dug into it, which is fascinating, and of the Andamans and the mythology that sprung from that place, influencing King Kong and other narratives that define Native cultures, often for worse and not for better. But Adam like lived it in a way too, which is, makes him a particularly valuable perspective in this film. Yeah, he's great. You know, we've talked a little bit about the impetus of the adventure stories, the missionary drive. And I, you know, John really believed he had a calling. But I do think you hint at least one other driving factor here. See it in the plan that John wrote up that you mentioned. That plan of 26 pages included things you might expect, like maps and technology and possible ways to get there. But it also included something that surprised me. Maybe it shouldn't. It's almost like a section that's almost like a business plan, right? It's like vision, target audience, competitive advantage, brand essence where none have gone. And I was really struck by this. And also it reminded me a bit about a boy state where these young men really can speak the language of marketing. that I don't think I or my friends could talk that age. It's very interesting, isn't it? It's really part of that culture. I think that's right. I mean, I see it as part of the culture of contemporary Christianity. And, and maybe you have insight on this too, but it's sort of like a franchise mm -hmm. model, right? And you talk about church planting, not to be diminishing about that phrasing, but I think that John absorbed, whether it was at ORU or from the missions organizations that he was in contact with, a way of thinking about his work. He was also an entrepreneur. I mean, he had to raise money right. because it was so extreme and he was a young man and mission organizations often don't like to send unmarried men on missions work. He had to work probably extra hard to get support. Essentially, it, it's a fascinating document. It's, it's a business plan. It's theological treatise to some degree. It is also like a, it's like a spy brief or something. It's like a mission impossible to John. It was mission impossible. And here's 26 pages. It's not a crazy Unabomber manifesto. This is like, I'm going to do it this way. It has not been revealed before that master plan. We were fortunate to get our hands on a copy of it. And I think to find a way to talk about it in the film that really reflects John's mania and methodical preparation at the same time. It's the paradox, again, of both the story and John himself. John, as you mentioned, is an entrepreneur. He's something of an online influencer, I think, proposing this sort of adventuresome Christianity. And he actually promotes brands like Perky Jerky and Bedrock Sandals. He even, in his diary, in his, his moments when he's thinking about this very dangerous encounter of going on to the beach, he mentions, maybe I'll wear the Bedrock Sandals. He was definitely a part of that generation that I think is constantly thinking about how they present, again, in his Facebook, in his, all of his YouTube videos. What I think is really interesting is that as in his death, he then became a meme, which is a much shrunken sort of version of him. And some part of this project, I like to say, is a de-memeing of yeah. both him and of the Sentinelese, right? Because there's a real shorthand, you see the memes and it's like, what? And then, yeah. in fact, the context here is so layered. I think he has a foot squarely in the 21st century. 
as a young millennial and a foot in the first century in his Christianity. It's interesting how Jimmy Shaw, his history of missions teacher at ORU, talks about Christianity has gone from a few hundred to a, a few billion through careful, patient work, but also the kinds of flips, I think is the word he uses in describing John's leap into the unknown. And I think that's always been true and why Christianity is so prevalent and why people like John have always taken up the call. Also, going back to something you raised earlier, I mean, there was a kind of test of manhood. Masculinity has been a theme we explored in Boy State. We didn't oh, talk yeah. about but, but John is out to prove himself as a man. I think that's why some of those early, both religious and also secular stories were so enchanting to him, is that they were about tests of manhood or maleness. Were you handy with a hatchet? Could you fish with your hands and stuff like that, that, that I plead guilty to being seduced by and loving Tintin, still do. So interesting. I've never thought of this. Like this is, I mean, mm -hmm. in the essence you brought up where none have gone, it's true that that reads to me as very male. And I refer anyone to our first interview where we talked about performative masculinity uh, from Burt Reynolds through The Boys of Boys State. So, yes, I, I definitely thought about that all through this film. I want to talk about something that I didn't fully understand or maybe I didn't think about was John did not act alone. He had many supporters. His father might say enablers or even people who pushed him into it. Let's start with the preacher named Bobby, who seems to be at Oral Roberts University, who seems to galvanize John's resolve. Bobby is Bobby Parks, I think is a couple of years older than John maybe, and was part of the young missions program at ORU. They did work in South Africa together, Bobby and John. They were playing soccer with kids and evangelizing. And Bobby, he didn't participate in the film, but there's some footage of him giving some sermons. He's really powerfully magnetic, charismatic, and you can see how John might have fallen under his sway. And he, John talks about Bobby being a really important person to him on this journey. I and mean, he was with him at the nearly the very end. He was in the Andaman Islands visiting John in John's safe house. John was quarantined in a safe house right before he set out on his final mission. It's not clear whether Bobby was in any way related to All Nations, which was the mission sending organization that John partnered with and helped to train John. What we know and what All Nations acknowledged is that John had a what I'd call like a case agent. He had a handler. We don't know who that person was. But clearly, Bobby was an important person for John. And I think that we describe a talk about, John has talked about as being the spear tip, right, by his fa father. But the, the, the spear sits on a shaft. And so there were people and organizations that supported John. He was not a lone wolf. He was not a, a reckless, you know, suicide bomber. He enlisted support where he could find it, and he found it. And um, Bobby was just one of those key people along the way who sharpened him into a point. But John was the person who went to the island and whose life was at risk. That's the distinction that is important here, right? There's the soldiers on the ground and then there's the people who don't go into the field. I think that in Patrick's letter, which is anguished, he's really just questioning John's choices, but the allure, the seduction of the people around him who, in his words, really, I'll use that word again, enchanted John. And I think that he feels that John was unmoored at some point, that perhaps Patrick acknowledges his own failures professionally. In John's eyes, his father had lost some respect or some esteem. And I think John perhaps had gone looking for, like we're getting into the realm of psychoanalysis, but, but Patrick suggests this, that John had gone looking for other 
mentors, other father figures, not just that father on high, but on terrestrial fathers and found them. And this group, All Nations, they train people for this sort of work. And you have an animation which shows this sort of training. They say what they're trying to do is help people get ready for the actual encounter. To me, it felt more like they were getting you to the point where you felt you could handle it because it's never going to be like what they're showing. I made a whole movie about the army training to go to Iraq by running their soldiers through a simulation. And I think I feel the same way about it as I felt about that exercise, which is that it, it makes a lot of sense on some level. And on the other hand, it's totally pointless because the reality is so different than what you might encounter when you role play first contact in Kansas City in a park, a bunch of Christian mission sending staff wearing headdresses and waving broomsticks, pretending to be a tribe who is receiving or not receiving you. I can understand why on some level psychologically, it might've been useful for John to run through that scenario. Was that what he was thinking about when he landed on North Sentinel and was confronting the tribe? I think he was probably dealing with more immediate concerns. So I do get it. I get the value of role play, but I think it tells us more about a kind of fantasy. Well, that's my perspective of it. And certainly missionaries have been successful. And there are some that are mentioned in the film, the, the case of Jim Elliott and his contemporaries in Ecuador, which is a formative story for John in the 1950s missionaries mm -hmm. who were killed trying to convert the Waurani. Subsequently, those missionaries' family members went back and were successful to some degree. And I, so I think that's part of that sort of comforting narrative. I did want to ask you about something that I think connects Boys State with this film, is that you really do seem to be attuned to these young men of ambition. In actuality, Young Western men, uh, I would say, seem to be losing their ambition. I mean, as a father of three teenage sons, I admit to worrying about this often. I wish my kids had a, an accountability group of friends. Um, <laughs> one stat, you know, we're getting to a place close to where young women outnumber young men in college by a two to one margin. Just to give you one stat, a huge switch, complete switch in my lifetime. And by the way, to be on the record here, I... I'm extremely glad that young women are going to college. This is a terrific change in our world. I am worried about the young men. When you talk to these young men, should we be worried? You know, I hate to ask you to answer a huge sociological question, but just what do you think about when you think about young men today? We have two teenage daughters. So I think that a lot of our thinking in all of our work, this is not just with young men, this is men of all ages, but recently a lot of young men. I think that part of our study is probably because we we are worried too, but the people we meet specifically, not so much in this film, but in Boy State, were inspiring in different ways. This is a, a theme in a lot in our work and not just young men, but some middle-aged men too, and Pastor Jay and Ed Speedo Jager. I mean, these are men who are really struggling to be all the things they feel like society expects them to be and that they want to be. And and I worry there there is there's not a simple way to, to respond to what you've asked about, but I do feel that, I mean, ultimately the takeaway to me about this story was less that aspect of John. It, it's more that by opening up his theology, this fusion of evangelism, but also these secular stories of adventure, the film actually reflected back on us and, and our absorption of stories, which for young men have often been the fuel of extraction, of harm, of cultural obliteration. And I think that that sort of maybe goes beyond simply a question of masculinity, but I think it's often been driven by a sense of, as Adam Goodhart says in the film towards the end, that the island is a stage that you're stepping onto for a performance of, in this case, masculinity 
in some way, although John went with love in his heart. So you unravel that paradox for us. I'll leave you with that. Thank you. And, and thank you for this film. As you've noted, it definitely is about people of strong religious belief and what drives them. But also, it's a story I really think about this notion of like this utopia, this untouched world that's out there that if we could just get to again, but haunts our politics, it haunts the way we talk about things. Can we make America great again? Where is this past wonderful world? And I really do think that it opens the doors for us to rethink those tropes in our way of thinking. That's such a beautiful and important thought, Michael. I think you're absolutely right. That's the sort of deeper subtext of this story is that we, we, we've lost something and we want to regain it and we don't know how and we never will. And I think that something about that island conjures that sense of loss and why we grasp towards what the island means for us. And, and that's part of what this film is exploring too. My takeaway every time I watch the movie, I do think there is a, because we have so many of these guys in the film who are older and are reflecting on something they did many years before, they have perspective on an event now where they think, well, what happens when you decentralize yourself from the center of the narrative and you realize there's something way bigger than you? This island is full of people who are coming with their own history, with their own perspective on your love mission. Once you start to analyze a situation where you're not the center of the story, it becomes a way better story, but also much more meaningful. And perhaps you wouldn't do that thing, even, even though you felt you were doing it out of love. I, my takeaway really is what happens when you take yourself out of the center of the story and how does that change your behavior? Thank you for being here. Thank you. Michael, good to talk to you.